I think we're good here. That's going. So, I am in the basement of the uh, Library Drawn and Quarterly. The children's bookstore. The children's bookstore in Montreal, Quebec, with Tom Devlin. And Tom, could you give me a quick bio? Sure. I'm currently the executive editor of Drawn and Quarterly, and I've been here for, I think, officially like 18 years. I moved here with um, my wife, Peggy Burns. She was hired as a publicist. So we were living in New York, so we moved here. And I wasn't hired by Drawn and Quarterly. I just came with her. But we kind of had a plan that we would make Chris Oliveros, the publisher and founder, hire me someday. You had a plan to take over, a a long-term plan to take over? I don't know about take over, but we had a long-term plan that I would just have a job. So I was, you know, at the, in the apartment, uh, I had my own publishing house at the time, High Water Books, so I was working on that, and I was working on some, some freelance illustration and freelance design, you know, barely on any of those things, and um, while she would go to the office every day. And occasionally I would go help pack boxes or whatever, because I was bored sitting at home. Okay. Um, in a city where we didn't know anybody but Chris. Right. So, okay. So, right now, you are the executive editor. Right. Let's wind it back to your childhood and your love of Peanuts, Lil Abner, Broomhilda, and BC. (laughs) Correct. It's all covered. That's Uh, good. And your mom worked at a library where you had access to a ton of comics. Yeah. I mean, it it was kind of what... Uh, it often is the case is that you know it was the comics in the newspaper right and of course that's why those are all listed and you know something like Pogo 2 was in the paper still at that point okay Um, so I just would you know I just liked the comics so I would just read those um, relentlessly and then of course it's always the supermarket comics that you could get you go to the supermarket with your mom and there were some on the spinner rack and eventually you find like the the um the store in town that's, you know, the little shop that has milk and comics. And so then I would buy superhero comics there. It's kind of the pretty standard, like, suburban story. Like, you you know, and I would just, anywhere I could find comics. So um, even before my mother was working at the library, I would go to the library and, you know, check out every single book about comics. Yeah, any, uh, it's like me, I've asked, you know, why do you, why are you so obsessed with books? Hard to say. What about you with the comics? Is there I wasn't something... a very good reader, and I think I'm still not a very good reader. So right. I do think that something appealed to me in that way. It just was easier? I don't know. Yeah. It just appealed. And of course, you know, in a newspaper, that is going to stick out to any kid. And like any kid, I drew... I think it's very likely that I got um, positive reinforcement and then just thought, like, okay, I'm into this. I'm into being praised. I'm into, now I draw. I like comics. This is, you know... You were indulged. Anybody who's deeply into comics, you you kind of just are, and other things aren't as interesting to you. We all have those kinds of obsessions, right? Like, I like movies, but I am not obsessed with movies the way... Yeah, kind of is. I mean, it's just eventually it's just that magic of, you know, how they work that okay. probably keeps keeps me engaged. So you went to 
out-of-town news in Norwood, Massachusetts. Yeah, that was where we'd go buy most of our, our superhero comics. My brother and I, our mom would drop us off there. A million Year Picnic and Newbury Comics in Boston, Cambridge area. Right, so in high school we would take the train from the suburbs into the city um, and then we would go around to any place in the Yellow Pages that listed that they sold comics. So I nice. remember there was a place, you know, that's what you did, right? You just looked it up. Totally, yeah. Um, and yeah. I remember... Get a list and then... You get a list and you go to those addresses yeah, and yeah, you have yeah. no idea what you're getting. And so you get to some place and you'd be like, this is this is just... They've got eight comics right. here, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> underneath a shelf. Right. Um, but hey, place, it might be the comic. Just, there was a great place in North Station that, as I remember it, was just a big open room with tables just piled with magazines. Right. And it'd be the kind of thing that would just have newspapers and like Playboy magazines and comics and just and you would just go through it was just paper, right? Yeah. And yeah. and you'd just go through and look and hope you could find some like good comics. So, so what was a good comic then? Anything. It was anything. I mean, you know, we had all the stuff like we'd be into um the X Men or the Hulk or whatever. Okay. It was it was always like a, a small group of us, right? The neighborhood kids would go in, so we were all Marvel heads so we're looking for spider-man and you know an x-man and whatever okay. it'll just be stuff like that and you know you hope to find an old one too right yeah which i'm talking this is the 70s so the old ones are sort of not that old right in a way right they're just 60s you hope to find some 60s comics and occasionally you do why a lot of times you why just do you hope something. for that well just because they're old you read about them you'd read about them in the comics that say like c issue 12 i see you know okay. like this is the previous appearance of the vulture or something. So that's all. This... you're just looking for anything. You're trying to fill in a collection. You're just trying to read. Yeah. More. I was going to say, is there a collecting gene here involved? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that kind of goes with it and I do call, I've collected things over time, but it's hard to say. I don't know. In some ways I do still have a collecting gene, Yeah. but it was just part of the world. Like okay. you want more. And yeah. the only way to get more is to collect it, right? Right, okay. You're all caught up on what's happening right now, so you go. You have to go into the past to fill in these holes. So you say that you like the soap opera stuff. That was always your favorite part of the comics. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it just was... I mentioned that specifically because I feel like people don't always talk about that. Like, I liked the romance and the soap opera. Right. Of say the X Men, yeah, and that just drew me in in the way like uh, you know serialized things do, and the way soap opera does. And I was less interested in sort of the power of things, you know, like so like a character like the Punisher wouldn't be interesting to me because that's just all violence, is it? Or yeah, violence, revenge, and that wasn't a thing, you know, that I was that into. I was obviously into the drawing as well, you know. I had favorite artists and stuff. Right. But it was appealing to me that, that there was just, like, this bigger soap opera story. What about the artists? Like, who's your favorite? From back then? Yeah. Who did I really like? I really liked, like, John Romita Sr., like, the, his Spider-Man. I liked um, I liked uh, Gene Colan, who would do Daredevil. Okay. You know, I liked guys like that. It's kind of pretty typical for the era. It's a little bit post, like, Ditko and Kirby and kind of those founders of Marvel. And it's more when it's kind of, there's this, 
it's opened up and there's a lot of, you know, bad Kirby and Ditko imitators I was not interested in, but I like those two an awful lot. Uh, what's the big deal about uh, Love and Rockets? Oh, so, I mean, Love and Rockets, I think, is, is absolutely the ground zero of our current industry okay. in a way that, you know, even a lot of the undergrounds um, aren't the 60s, 70s underground stuff, which are obviously very important and very important and, you know, influencing the Hernandez brothers. But I, I just kind of think, like, that's got a bit... It obviously has the soap opera in it, so that's why it was kind of, you know, so interesting to me. I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? But um, I also think the ambition of Gilbert Hernandez was is pretty important to a lot of creators then and since, in a way people don't know. That he's just... The fact that he was doing this these stories about the small town in, in uh, Central America sort of makes no sense in in this the industry as it existed at the time yeah you know and i think just the fact that he was doing that really influenced jaime who jaime was clearly the um the the draftsman that everybody was like that guy can really draw gilbert is amazing too but but they kind of were known as like that's the guy who can really draw and that's the guy who can really write but i think it was really just his ambition and just doing something that really was like nothing else you know i mean he was so divorced from the traditions of adventure comics and superhero comics and everything so it wasn't about pissing off the squares i don't know <laughs> yeah it wasn't about being transgressive he was just like i have this chance i want to write something about, that i want to write yeah and and i want to be a like a great literary figure even right yeah so, that is a key remark right there it seems to me is there's this yearning or striving for serious to be taken seriously yeah 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 but also really you know knowing the history and their influences are, are very fascinating now like you know looking at them in retrospect they were broken from a lot of the they like all the superhero comics too but they had some other very interesting influences like the Archie comics and, and Dennis the Menace comics that they would they were very forthcoming about. And that stuff clearly sort of makes the difference. I think with them that they're not just coming from one thing. They're not trying to make the best superhero comic possible. Just trying to tell the best stories. So what well, is yeah. Love and Rockets? Is it like a series of comics? It is. It began in the early 80s. Um, actually, it's its 40th anniversary this year. Okay. It's a PBS special. Um on it right now that kind of breaks it down pretty well it's it's only an hour long so it's, to me it seems like six hours too short so it's just a, a yeah it was a a comic like self-published that these three brothers total there were i think four brothers and a sister but three brothers did the comic together and, how and many one comics? of the brothers pretty quickly dropped out so okay. it became gilbert and jaime how many uh, comics in total I mean, it's been going on for 40 years. It's a, yeah, it's a whole thing. It's still running. Oh, my goodness. They're okay. about to put out, like, a big box <laughs> set of the first 50 issues. It's these two, um, you know, Latinx brothers who start this series, and they're, they're punk rockers, and it's just, it's not about their lives exactly, but in some ways it is. Jaime's stories become very much about, like, kind of the L.A. punk scene and just being Latinx living in Los Angeles, and Gilbert is doing, of course like Latin America doing these stories but but he's doing small town stories they're never exactly 
doing autobiographical Latinx comics as they're more like just doing the comics that are them that are that are their experience that's autobiographical though. it is it is but I, I feel like it doesn't it's just like this is the world rather than we are trying to talk to white people I guess it, like it does, it seems to just be like they don't care. They're the they're punk rockers. They don't care. This is the comics yeah. they're going to make. They're not making them for anybody but themselves, in a way. But they they're aware. They want to get them out there. I'm describing that very badly. It seems like you're you're valuing the originality for one thing, but also this attitude that I don't care if these things sell to a market. I'm just doing them because I think this is important. Yeah, I mean, they really, I think they really just was like, hey, we should do a comic. This stuff is sort of, is in their documentary, but, and, um, and then they got some, you know, praise for it, and they were like, oh, that was unexpected. Right. And then a publisher approached them to say, you know, we want to publish you, and that's Fanagraphics, and that becomes, you know, Fanagraphics sort of flagship comic title. And then they start kind of getting more notice and, and praise, and they, suddenly they're like, oh, I guess we... This is what we do for a living now. Yeah. And they're young, early 20s, you know, when they're <laughs> beginning this. It's hard to say. I just, like, as soon as I saw it, like, you know, I, I understood it. And, and also was like, what is happening here? This is what I've been waiting for. You know, I wasn't that interested in superhero comics anymore. And, you know, it's a sort of an age-old story where you're just kind of like still buying them like out of habit but you're not that into them and then there's love and rockets and it was like oh my god this is everything i've been hoping for you know i was in university at the time and so i'm being exposed to newer things and becoming curious about you know like foreign films or you know or literary writers in a way that i hadn't been before right and then here's this comic that is speaking to that yeah, speaking to that, for sure. Not working within the world of comics, yes. right outside. I think that's a key. another key point about this, is, is breaking out of that world of the comic book shop. And, and we'll talk about that by getting into bookstores and speaking to serious issues. Yeah, I mean, that comes much later, for sure. But yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. really, it's that the timing for me is perfect, you know? Yeah. I'm in university, I'm, I, you know, I love comics, but I'm a little bored with what's going on, and then here's this thing. And while you were there, I guess, did you start working at, at Newbury Comics? Yeah, so it's around the time that I leave university okay. um, that I start working at Newbury Comics. Newbury Comics is a kind of more like a lifestyle store Okay. by then, so they have comics. It started with, with a comic book collection, but they started selling punk rock singles, you know, in the late 70s, and then became a music store. So they were really a music store, okay. more than they were a comic store. But comics has always remained important because it's in the name and it's, it's their origins, you know? And what did you learn there at that retail outlet? I don't know how much I really learned in every comics. I wasn't there that long. It's when I started working in comics, right? I see. And, um, and then I met people at the distributor, Diamond Comics. Yes. And, you know, then I started meeting retailers and um, other people who kind of were into comics post kind of high school reading superhero comics. You know, I started to read people with different interests. So that's how I started getting, you know, introduced to some of the classic undergrounds, but also that's when Raw Magazine is coming out, you know, so I start seeing all this stuff. Okay, I was going to say, what are some of the more important undergrounds? 
Raw magazine. That's yeah. key for kind of the the new the new uh, comics world, and you know, and the undergrounds are great, but that's you know, well trodden ground, I guess. But like Raw and Love and Rockets, and then you're adding um, Pete Bag um, neat stuff and Dan Klaus's Eight Ball to the mix, and then Chester Brown is doing Yummy Fur, and so then it just starts to kind of expand, kind of this you know, second wave of underground comics, which are, again, divorced from the original just kind of underground, subcultural... The Robert Crumb kind of stuff? Sure. And, okay. and, and the undergrounds were, were a lot of them were, were sort of against mainstream culture, right? right. Like, and, yeah. and, and made to specifically be repugnant yes. to mainstream culture. And so the, the, second, the second wave of undergrounds is... is a little bit different from that, I think, and that is, that's not its concern as much. Like, it's trying to go other places. Okay, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, by asking that question about Newbury Comics and retail, and also Million Year Picnic is another, uh, that's Harvard Square, right? Yeah, and so is Newbury Comics. That was in yeah. Harvard Square where okay. I worked. Million Year Picnic becomes much more of the sort of the retail lesson because it's only yes. the comic store. And I'm working with uh, Tony Davis, who is, you know, sort of handing down the wisdom of running, working in that comic store for as many years as he had. He went to Harvard and started working in the comic store while he was at Harvard. I think he's a, maybe a little bit younger than me, but, you know, around the same age. And just so he'd been there longer. I was a little bit older at that time, right, out of college. So he just just was telling me just basics of, of retailing, you know, like what you could price things at and why and and just getting a real wide range of different comics and where he would place them in the store and just all that kind of stuff. But also providing a lot of um, autonomy for myself and other people who worked there to kind of build up the sections. So key takeaways from that experience for you then? And I don't mind getting very specific about, like, why do you put that comic where you put it? Well, I mean, one of the things is is that comic stores are kind of, they have this reputation for being kind of like weirdos' dens, right? They're dark and, you know, and hard to figure out, and they're just scary to look into for a civilian. So Tony tried to avoid that, and you know, one thing he did is that he had, like, um, kids' comics and strip collections, like, right as you came in the door... So the average person would see things that they understood rather than something that, you know, like a tortured heavy metal or superhero cover that would repulse them. They'd walk in and there'd be a Foxtrot selection or something that they would understand. Calvin and Hobbes, right? Um, Friendly. For sure. And then just, um, I remember one time he would just, they'd just price the comics right on the cover. They'd just put a price sticker right on the cover, which you know, was horrifying to me, like older comics, like just older... You mean he'd stamp them right on there, or...? Yeah, they would just uh, price sticker right on the cover. Oh, st- and I'd be like, you can't do that. These, Yeah, and he was like, look, I'll tell you that, you know, you put that in plastic and put a price sticker on there, and you're not going to sell it. But you just have the sticker on there, people flip through it, and then they'll just go buy it, and they don't care about the sticker. That was completely shocking to me, and it was utterly right. People wanted to be able to look through the thing, you know, they weren't there. They weren't walking through the door saying, I must find X number four, and I will pay whatever the price is they want to browse. And so they go like, oh, I like that. So in other words, fewer real collectors then. 
Well, I mean, he's like, don't would get, do that. you know, it was just like, don't get wrapped up right. in that collectible side. I see. You know? Yeah. yeah. You know, people want to read these things. Yeah, I mean, it was so it was just, it was just kind of, you know, simple stuff like that. And just um, how he would order and how much he would keep in stock of things and just, you know. Um, and because we were right there in Harvard Square, right next to Harvard, you know, you'd get a new crop of customers. Yeah, you're not just in a small town where it's just the same people, just growing older <laughs> for the most part, right? <laughs> so you could actually stock something that would typically seem old to a, a normal comic store that's fresh. You know, like new issues of Hate or 8-Ball or Love and Rockets, you could go back as far as possible with those issues, whatever the publisher had, and you'd sell them because they were new to the students. They were coming in from all over the world, even, and anything you had on your shelves was a shock to them, was, was brand new to them, because there's no store that was going to have all that, right? Right. So, stuff like that. It was So that was really, really great. Anything else about, you know, the, the key to, uh, to selling uh, books or comics in the store? Um... It's, I mean, it's, it's just what you'd expect is, you know, it's easier to sell stuff that you're into. In other words, because you can, you can hand sell it better? Because you can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So there was, you know, like I was sort of the underground comics guy, right? And the mini comics guy. And that was right. also where I became introduced to mini comics and really small press artists because I was right there and they'd come in to sell their books. And then I was like, wait, there's a whole world here. Okay. And mini comics was pretty important to, like you know, my next step into publishing. So, you know, there was like a superhero guy and there was a guy who was kind of more into the, like the, the vertigo, like Sandman and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I was like the mini comics guy. There were a variety of people who could talk to the different types of comics that were in the store. Yeah. And if you're into it, you can sell anything. Well, too. that was the thing. You that's know, like true. I was, you're enthusiastic. I was like, yeah, like, yeah, you have to get this. This is great. <laughs> it's right. You know? Well, that's the other thing, too, is people come to bookstores and comic stores for expertise and advice and talk talking yeah, to people who love the same stuff they do. Yeah. This is this is a huge part of it, isn't it? It's a, I mean, it's a big part of any buy local. Well, plus there's so much stuff to know. You, you, it's like an endless conversation. And especially as now, you know, yeah, right? Yeah. Like back then, maybe less so. Back then, it, you know, I mean, you would go just to see what there was, right? Like now yeah. you know some of what there is, and then right. there's a lot you're choosing not to read or know about because it's too much coming in <laughs> through your computer, yes, right? Yes. But yes, you go in and there's, you know, there's just an onslaught of new things and you know a staffer can easily say oh you want that one you like this and this then this is the one you want yeah okay. and of course we know that algorithms are doing that okay but it is hard to beat. you know you make a friend in the bookstore and you know to go ask you know benjamin yeah and you can't beat that i mean we all ask friends what was the last movie you saw what record do you like right now you know one thing I, and again, I'm, I'm quoting from, I should reference this, this, uh, where the hell do we put those? Uh, we set them down over here. Drawn and quarterly, because that's, a, that's a really what we're going to be talking mostly about. 25 years of contemporary cartooning, comics, and graphic novels. And, uh, Tom, you were one of the, one of the key editors of this, right? Yeah, it was my conception, yeah. but of course, 
you know, it's a 776-page book. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the efforts of, of many, many people. Right. Um, but it right. was always, that was yeah. the basic idea of how um, we put it together was, was mine. I knew I didn't want to do an oral history. Print is where it's at. Yeah, but I mean, there's been a lot of oral history biographies and a lot of great ones. I didn't want to make us the center exactly. I wanted the artists. That's the I wanted the tribute towards the artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Much yeah. more so than us. The truth is, is that there's there's not a lot of story surrounding Chris and Peggy and I. Really, you know, like there's our histories in comics, but for the most part, we've led pretty unremarkable lives. You know, no, wait a minute. Separate the, from Drawn and Quarterly, I think. Well, yeah, I was going to say, though, that, I mean, it, it is remarkable what you've done with, you know, early ideas and what you've turned in, into. I think that's pretty impressive. But no, these are appreciations from all sorts of great artists about other artists, about what Drawn and Quarterly has achieved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. and, and really, mostly it's like we wanted to get, we got like literary writers to write about a favorite cartoonist of theirs that we published. Like, that was a big deal. And, and, and comics critics to write about um, the cartoonists. You know, that was, that was important because it's all these cartoonists. You know, there's nothing without them. There's yeah. a comics company that's been around for like 33 years now, you know, which I think is a pretty, that's a pretty big publishing success. To have that kind of longevity, and um, and yeah. I think you know, like a major Canadian publishing house. Yeah, like we've been around for this long. Well, international. Yeah, in yeah. international. Yes, I mean, sure. Yeah. So that's something. But the, of course, the real story is is the artist. There's nothing without them. Right, and again, that's a, a theme that I come across a lot in the publishing world: is publishers working with writers throughout the course of their lives. It's an investment, uh, ideally, in their whole career, in their output. For sure. Uh, working together to produce great work. Yeah, I mean, we've been publishing some people for 33 years, yeah. right? Yeah, you know? yeah. Some fr people from their early 20s to, yeah. you know, they're mm. in their 50s now. Um that's and that is pretty remarkable. I think it's it can be quite rare, um, especially in modern times. With and with agents, and, and it's absolutely yeah. what it's all about for yeah. us. There's nothing that you know we're interested in really nothing else than than promoting the work of these great artists and supporting these artists the best we possibly can. That's always been the thing: is to make a a business that works that um, survives, so that their work stays available and, you know, they have a safe place. This is exactly what uh, the head of uh, Zerkampf in uh, Germany, Berlin, said to me about three months ago. That's, yeah, that's yeah. been their philosophy from day one with, uh, with some of the great German authors. You, it's, why, it's like why, why you got into it, right? So right. it's like keeping that always in the front of your mind. It's like yeah. we don't matter. The individuals kind of behind the business in you the way that the artists do and we want to make sure that the artists have a you know feel safe and get their work out there and feel like they can make something and they have a place to take it but you have the great fun and privilege of 
hanging out with them, getting to know them, becoming friends with oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't I mean, want that's, to do anything That's else, huge, right? Yeah, yeah. At least the nice ones, not, not the assholes. They're all great. <laughs> I have no bad things to say about anyone. They're, they're, I wasn't expecting They're all that. wonderful. Okay. Um, okay. Just quickly, we're returning to the retail side. So what's sold and why? I don't know. I mean, it really, it almost didn't matter. And, and, you know, it was just more like I, at the time, I was just thrilled again to like find artists that I liked and sell this stuff. And that's, that's totally how, you know, my first publishing company came about is that I just thought like, oh, these artists aren't being published by Fanographics or Drawn and Quarterly. And I think they're cool and I don't see them fitting into their their publishing lines so i will try to get the word out so i started out as like a distribution house and i did that while i was at million year picnic i started out distributing mini comics which would which was endlessly frustrating because mini comics cartoonists would make like 20 of something you know and i'd be like i i need 20 and they'd be like i made 20 here's five yeah they're like okay here's your five dollars and I'm trying to go sell these now, you know. You know. So what would you do? You'd send I'd it out to a list? sell them all at the Million Year Picnic. Oh, right there. Like, okay. Or I'd go to one convention and have a handful of comments, right? And, yeah, okay. Yeah. So a big part of it, isn't it, with publishing is discovering sure. someone. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I found this great artist and yeah. I'm bringing this person to the world. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you also try not to be proprietary about it because that person existed. You just had the, you were just looking found or them. had the good fortune of, right. you know, being able to put a couple of things together to help other people see them. It is funny. It's a, it's a funny kind of a, a headstrong notion in some way, like you don't know better to, you know, you just like, this is it. This yeah. is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it just appeals to you right then and there, right? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I watched a Chris Ware interview or listened to one not that long ago, and uh, he talked about this interesting mix with cartoonists uh, of uh, arrogance and self-doubt. Sure. <laughs> in you know, any Almost artist. in the extreme. Any, yeah, yeah. but I guess yeah, particularly yeah, yeah. here, apparently, according to him. But maybe that's the same with the publishers, too. I don't know. But it's funny because the Chris Oliveris, who founded Drone and Quarterly, he's a cartoonist and so are you. Yeah, I would rarely call myself a cartoonist. Okay, but, um, but still, you, you had ambitions when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I still yeah. draw a bit you right. know, and still hope to make something, but, you know, working on the business right now. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I mean, sure, I think that not every good comics... Uh, editor or publisher has drawn comics themselves, okay. you know. Okay. I'm not certain, <laughs> you know, to say that, that that's necessarily important. Definitely when I see a cartoonist that I really like, they make me excited about drawing. And that might not happen to somebody who doesn't really draw. What is it? Is it like I, you oh, see you them see. and you think... Man, they're so good. I've got to get back to the drawing board. Sure. Yeah, you That's kind of, how it works. Yeah, you get excited like that. And, you know, I can, that can happen, you know, again, with anything, right? Like, just you, you read a great writer and you're just sort of inspired, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, your own sentences are forming in your mind as you're, like, reading this great writer, too. Like That's if you're a writer. But if you're a reader, 
if it's a great work, you're you're inspired to go out and change your life, or go out and uh, change the world, or do something about your life. Sure. From what sure. you've read. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that that's a connection that I have that maybe someone who doesn't draw doesn't have. Right? I see. Sure. And that could be the same for Chris, but I, you know, I can't speak for him on that. But, no. I mean, comics is filled with with hopefuls, and you know, publishing is filled with hopefuls as well, right? The business part yeah. is filled with people who hope to do their novel and you know it's just part of the arts yeah so you wanted to advance what comics could be and get people to pay attention to the packaging yeah for sure so it's definitely a time when comics was being talked about like in literary terms you know it's post mouse and then there's a lot of comics coming out that um I thought were really great, but weren't getting the kind of play. And working in a comic store, I just stood there and looked at, you know, rack after rack of, like, these murky, dark, tortured covers for superhero comics. And I was just like, well, no wonder people don't want these things. You know, like, they look like that. And they're also thin and flimsy, right? And so I was like, well, that doesn't ask for any respect, so graphic novels had started coming out, and I was like, if it has more presence and just says, like, take me seriously as an object, people will. I worked next door to a bookstore, so I'd go in and look at, you know, different book covers, and, and that's always fun to look at, you know, book design, and I liked those objects. And so I, I definitely thought about, like, the object. So it's kind of thinking, like, what is, what's the next step? And that was something that I, like, the evangelical side of me was really starting to, you know, kind of, like, kick in. And I was thinking, like, why don't people love these things as much as I do? That was, and that was totally, you know, I said I'm going to be a graphic novel publisher. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to publish pamphlets. You know, I want books, and I want books in bookstores, and I want people to take comics seriously. I see, okay. You know, it's it's interesting. When I look at drawn and quarterly books, and, and I assume the early books that you put out, they don't have dust jackets. They're kind of, uh, they're a bit like the Tintin books uh, right. that I read when I was a kid or Rupert the Bear. They don't have, they're sturdy. They're built for kids to freaking... Yeah, I don't think I ever, I didn't ever publish a hardcover with High Water Book. Right. I couldn't afford to publish hardcover. And uh, early Drone and Quarterly books had dust jackets. There was a thing in comics for a while is that it, com- for comic book stores, it's always about price. So you had to keep the price low. Yeah. So if you made a hardcover book, that was too expensive for a comic book store. So you'd also make a soft cover at the same time, and you make a hard cover as kind of like the collector's edition. So you have a book plate and a jacket and, and everything. But they, they did tend to have jackets. I don't know fully what the impetus was, but jackets are expensive. It's another yeah, expense. Yeah, and you don't and have so to have so we were them. like, yeah, we'll just get rid of it. And we save some money here, and then we don't have to worry about jackets getting torn, and then, yeah, you yeah. know, like the warehouse saying we need more jackets, and you're like, well, you didn't print any extra jackets, and that kind of thing. So it really just became almost about necessity. That's how it ended up, like, with no jackets on our books. Well, it's funny, because what I thought is you just took the example of the French or the British and just said, you know, 
these are th this is how they do it over there. A lot of times, there's nothing under the jacket, right? Or there's a repeat. Even worse, there's a repeat of yes. what's on the dust jacket, yeah. and I was like, well, that makes no sense. It was just really, it was a, sort of about simplifying and being able to afford to make these books and keep the price down to be able to get them in the comic shops, which is all we had for a very long time. Right. There wasn't very much bookstore distribution. Okay. Now, you are a historian of comics. A bit. You felt the need to, what, revive or keep alive the some of the great ones yeah i mean i think that kind of comes with the territory a bit right like at a certain point you decide that um you're interested in the history of the medium that you're in or you're not i you know yeah and and there's always things to find in the past popular art forms can be weird because it's almost like you're speaking a different language you know now than than at the turn of the century. Which so, century? Both. <laughs> both, uh, you know, the 20th and the 21st. There's, there's great cartooning tradition at the beginning of the 20th century. And, and I always found interesting that a lot of these guys were like teenagers working at their local newspaper, right? And just drawing and drawing and drawing. Who, who, for example? Oh, just, you know, any of your, your you know, Bud Fisher, Did Mutton Jeff. I'm by no means deeply knowledgeable about no. those, those okay. early days. Or, you know, somebody like Billy DeBeck, who did um, Barney Google. It's a romantic ideal of, of what a cartoonist would be. You know, George Harriman has a handful of strips before he hits on Crazy Cat. But all these guys were doing, you know, editorial cartoons or whatever, spot illustrations in their newspapers, their local newspapers. That's how they're making a living until they become famous for being, you know, the guy who draws Bungle Family or, or whatever. It's, it's interesting, though, you like by, by producing this beautiful big book about drawn and quarterly, 25 years of contemporary cartooning comics and graphic novels, you are kind of focusing on the backstory, the backstory of, of these these cartoonists and the and the the publishing house by reviving some of these cartoonists from years ago. You're doing the same thing with the whole industry, the backstory. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that the history of any art form is always important, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's always worth like kind of looking back at that and taking the whole picture in. You know, I also. Um, firmly, I mean, I, a big part of my career was, was going right against whatever was the, the current perceived wisdom. You know, it helps to know um, what rules you're breaking, I suppose. Sometimes totally, it doesn't yeah. matter, right? I'm, it's like you know, a poet, yeah. Yeah, any aspect. I've always loved comics, so any aspect of it is interesting to me. And I kind of just assume it is to anybody else. I see. It's not deprecating here, but there's a lot of nerds in your world. Sure. And yeah. and they nerd out on stuff like this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You make a reference to a great subdued sense of humor, Tuva Janssen. Uh, can you tell me a bit about uh, her? Sure. So when I had um, high water books, you know, and I traveled around and do conventions, and I, I met this um, British historian named Paul Gravett at around the same time that I met this Australian cartoonist, no, New Zealand cartoonist, sorry, that's a terrible mistake. Yeah, big. Dylan Horrocks. He, Dylan had lived in 
in London for a while, and he had a photocopy book of these uh, Moomin cartoons, comic strips that appeared in the uh, Evening Sun, I think. And he had gotten it from Paul Gravette. So he showed it to me, and they were great comics. And so I was just kind of always curious about this. And um, it was one of the first things when I came to Drawn and Quarterly, I started working for Drawn and Quarterly. I waited for a while before pitching ideas because I was like, this is Chris's company. I want to get an understanding and, you know, I want to honor, you know, what yeah. he's doing. Respect. Is, I'm yeah. just happy to be here. But I had this idea, you know, to do this movement comic strip collection. And so then I asked him, he says, oh, yeah, that sounds great. So I called around, you know, figured out how to get the license and everything, and we started publishing those comics, and it was the fastest-selling, biggest success we had, the company had had yet. How did you get the rights, then? Is it, is it... I called a museum, I think. Um, there was a Moomin Museum, and I called there, and then they gave me the, the number to the rights holders. And who were they? The estate? It was split between a couple of things. You know, there were different things were held by different publishing houses. Or you know, oh, now I, I think it's all under the estate, but at the time it wasn't. So you know, I tracked that down, and they were perfectly happy because nobody was particularly interested. Right. right? right. So it was really a bunch <laughs> of things were very lucky. So okay. we didn't have to fight for it or pay a, you know a lot of money that we couldn't afford for it or anything. And um, and then we got, also got lucky that Moomins were sort of well-known widely, if not um, highly, in the culture. You know, there was a lot of Scandinavians or people with Scandinavian friends or relatives who had read these books. There were chapter books, too, that FSG actually publishes. So they knew those. So it was something else movement that came out. Wait a sec. These were... Um... There's seven chapter books, I believe. So she wrote and... She started these... out as, you know, like a fine artist and then wrote these chapter books and then after a couple of those started doing the comic strip and then did that for a little bit and then found it the you know the workload of the comic strip crushing and went back and did the chapter books and then wrapped those up because then found like i don't need to keep doing this and then started writing books for adults um, and when did she die relatively recently in the early 2000s why were you blown away by it's just drawn so well and um what does that mean though yeah, what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> um, I they're just so well designed and drawn. You no, know, but what you beautiful. like? So it's one of these things where you cannot put words to it. You just knew this was great stuff. That was it. Yeah. And and again, you knew because of all the you've looked at a ton of this stuff and and what? Yeah, it's one of the great things about comics, right? It's like almost like at a glance, you can you can see that that's really well done right you know the writing maybe doesn't hold up but there's so many decisions that go into like cartooning just that visually you can see that this person often has a grip on things so then they can also write it's not a given you know but there's sort of that so like you can look at a comic and you're you're more than halfway there and so you could look at her comics and see how good an artist she is. Yeah. And then when you read them and it's just this dry Scandinavian sarcasm, it's great. And it's going to hit with our zeitgeist, too. Is that what you well, mean? Well, you never know. I mean, there have been plenty of things that I just thought were the absolute best and still do, and not that many people like them, right? And so right. it's right. nice when they both line up, for sure. 
But what you did say was there's a great subdued sense of humor, which is very D and Q. Why is that? Well, you know, not it's we're not a belly laughs publisher, I suppose, right? right. Much more sly, dry. It had that kind of thing. The the art was very very beautiful, very well-designed, um, well-constructed, and then just these kind of smart, sly comics. And that seemed, you know, very drawn and quarterly. Who is Mitsuhiro Asakawa? Oh, I'm glad you brought him up. <laughs> so, so um, call him Asa for short. And um, so he is a Japanese comics historian. And so he is the guy that we go to when talking about Japanese comics. So we now have a, um, a couple of Japanese translators that we deal with very consistently, and that's Zach Davison for the Shigeru Mizuki stuff and Ryan Holmberg for everything else. So Ryan actually kind of um, trained at the knee of Asakawa. But Asakawa is a longtime comics fan and scholar, you know, living in Japan, so he, he knows all this stuff, he's read all this stuff for years, he has interviewed many of the greats of Japanese comics. He's really the great sort of secret figure of literary Japanese comics in the U.S. It almost always goes back to him. I'm jumping around a bit, like, which is typical of me. But uh, I just, this whole idea of uh, intelligent comics, it's like when Chris started up the company, he had in mind to be sort of like a graphic Harper's or New Yorker magazine, this sort of striving to be taken seriously. <clears throat> and again, I should just interject, not that maybe people care that much about it, but I, I don't know that I've bought into this. This idea, sure, and, and I, it's and it. I need. I know. I need to read Chris Ware's uh, Jimmy Corrigan. I'd recommend <laughs> Building Stories if you were looking for one to okay to start with, because that's the one that's a box with several chapters, several different books inside of it that you can read in any order, sort of like a um, B.S. Johnson. Yes, yes, my choice then. Idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. and um, and I think that kind of like shows um, is a really good showcase for what Chris does. But I'm I'm just saying for sort of the full Chris Ware uh, experience. What I want is proof that <laughs> it's intelligent and really worth my time. Yeah. Well, I mean, believe me, I mean, I've kind of face that for years, right? A lot of times, I mean, you think about this, a lot of times with um, people like Chris and myself, we're kids when we get into this, right? And we love this thing, and then we discover kind of like there's something else really going on here. Or people are doing work to that isn't just talking to, to children or to teenage boys, mm. that people are trying to talk about bigger things. Um, or succeeding, whatever, or just making something that's like art for art's sake. And, you know, you're realizing there's something going on here. What do you mean? That art is being made. You may not be able to fully put a finger on it. You're just like, this is a, here's a medium that you're obsessed with, and then you, you see like, oh, they're really up to something here, these these people. They are they're striving to, to make say. something. They're making either, they're just like off in their own weird little place making this weird thing. Or they're like they're outsider artists, or they're really striving 
to meet a, you know, kind of like a literary standard. There's a mix of both of those, right? I mean, the convincing we're trying to do is we're just trying to find this stuff and package it in a way that, um, you know, someone like you might pick it up and go like, oh, okay, sure, I'll give this a shot and say, oh, I see what they're up to. I mean, well, no, the problem, what I, what the problem is, is, is that it, something might be in that package and not be that good. Well, right. that's what I was going to say. It's like, I don't want uh, Robert Crumb. I don't want, you know, bodily fluids. I don't want adolescent male stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I want something that... And we weren't just, interested in that either. You know, we both were kind of thinking separately. Like, we want what's what's next. Okay. And, and I saw that in Love and Rockets. You know, in no way ever have thought of my self consider myself an intellectual or anything like that you know right, right. through love and rockets i discovered gabriel garcia marquez and um louis Bunuel because people compared with you know yeah, what they were what doing. was happening in love and rockets to those things and i was like well what are these things and then i was like oh my god this stuff's right. amazing it's of a kind those distinctions are pretty they're not going very far you know like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, okay, great South American writer. I get it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then and writing about small villages right. at times. And then um, Louis Bunuel, like Los Solvidados, you know, they're focusing right on his Mexican stuff, right? His Mexican years. Um, so it's, they're not really making a big stretch into finding things that are like this, right? But, right. but finding those things, and then I'm like, wow, what's, these things are amazing, you know? And then finding more, like other, researching other Latin American writing, you know, like I mentioned, Jose Noso, and then getting into other film because of Bunuel. Um, Bunuel is still like one of my all-time favorites. But what's the point you're making is that, uh, is that this, uh, this Love and Rockets is of a kind or that it opened a door for you or, or, or what? It, that it's just as serious, just as good, just as uh, thrilling, entertaining, whatever? Yeah, yeah, and also that that the that it could that there were comics that could kind of transport in that way, rather than being like another really good superhero story, you know, or really shocking you awake like what, you know, this is <laughs> all those bodily fluids. I'm shaken to my 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 middle class belief system. Tired, like any it's great, tired. Well, you know, I think it's important, but it's not all there is, right? And, and I mean, even some of that work is, it's reductive to say that it's just that. Yes. So just seeing that, um, I mean, that's often what you're looking for in, in literary work, is that it kind of opens things up for you. It, you know, yes. it, it helps you see things that, that maybe you didn't realize were there, or just makes you make connections. And so we were seeing that in, in the best comics. I see. And, you know, we wanted to share that with people. Uh, this Julie Doucet you mentioned as an important uh, contributor, an important artist of yours. Mm -hmm. I th think I saw reference to the fact that she left cartooning because of this little old boys club. Or it's kind of a, it's a often told part of her history, right? Like right. she's always continued to make art, but as I say, she wasn't always making comics. Understood. So maybe that's just part of her trajectory. Right. But I'm saying here, this this bodily fluids, snickering kind of adolescent stuff. I think the that, short version is is that what she found was she was 
whenever she was traveling or going somewhere, it was a bunch of dudes who were only interested in talking about comics. And she would be happy to talk to women and talk about things other than comics. And so that just became a bit exhausting for her. I see. Um, I mean, and also, you know, drawing comics can be a bit of a grind, you know, lonely and... And so I think, you know, all of that was, was a bit much for her. But in the first issue, this, this statement that, that Chris Olivares makes, the purpose, is a, one of them is a feminist purpose, I, I gather. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, right. he really started Growing Corley with the belief that it was possible to gather comics together and, you know, intelligent comics together and find a readership outside of the comic shop for those and uh you know the same i mean mine was slightly modified a few years later but basically that this stuff is great and that there are readers for it they just don't even know in a lot of ways that battle has been been won it's not a you know one that we have to think about so much and then in a lot of ways it will always be a fight yeah, I mean, again, with any kind of book, I'm just looking for something that's that's more exciting and interesting and captivating than than my regular day to day existence. That's what I'm looking for. Thousands of books that don't interest you. Most yeah. of them, like ninety nine percent or ninety five percent or whatever it is. And that, I mean, that's the same with anything, and it's the same yes. with comics, right? Yes. There are thousands of comics that don't interest me, and there's the ones I love. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Just winding down here, I do want to talk a bit about about the, the the whole idea of comics and graphic novels. Uh, I watched everything he does is is superb. Uh, Nick Mount, he did a, the the Prophet uh, U of T. He did a half an hour video on on comics and, and graphic novels. It's up on YouTube, and he quotes Will Asner talking about uh, sequential art. That's what we're looking at here with comics and graphic novels. Like film, except it's on a page, and, and space does for comics what time does for film. And the fact that this, this sequential art goes back centuries. I just wonder about... Uh, there is this prejudice, I think, general prejudice that words and pictures must be separate in order to be art. Despite William Blake, for example, uh, they need to be kept separate. What do you think about that? Uh, I don't think he's wrong, you know, and I think he is definitely using, um, he was using higher cinematic language to describe what was going on in comics to kind of get people to pay attention. You know, he's kind of puffing them up a bit, but not unreasonably. I mean, comics is a medium. You need to understand the mechanics of it, right? And if you're not inclined to understand those mechanics, then you're not going to care for it. It's more complex than just pictures, and it's more complex than just words. It is a combination of the two used in, in certain ways. And so it can be like poetry or music in its, you know, in the way poetry uses rhythm in language, it isn't just straight-up words that rhyme, right? It's yeah. Poetry is yeah. about the rhythm and the flow and the language and, and you know, the symbolism. And so, you know, I'm sure 
you, if you were talking to a poet about like poems you like, and they're like, yes, yes, everybody loves that poem, right? <laughs> like that kind of thing. Like they're deep into the the mechanics of it and everything, and that's the same with comics people, cartoonists, right? Like we're just deep into the the formal aspects of what makes these things work, which is highly, you know, very highly evolved, right? Over over decades even centuries of yeah. using images to tell stories, using, you know, a series of images or using words in concert with those images. Yeah. That it's something that's been worked on for a long time to kind of create this special medium. Yeah, um, so it's, not, it's nothing new, I guess that's the point. But I, I was just going to quickly add, though, that Nick was quoting Scott McCloud's understanding comics. Sure. And McCloud's among other things. I think that was his point about this prejudice. But it's also something that you grow out of. That's the idea of comics. That's this prejudice. And I think I feel that. Sure, of course. Because um, any kind of like intellectual striving tends to be about leaving um, childish things behind. So as a child, you're into picture books and you're into, you know, and you're into comic books or, you know, reading the newspaper comics. And then is you get older and you become more sophisticated, then you become interested in the other things that are going on in that newspaper. And you're reading, like, the important stuff. And, you, you know, you put picture books aside and you're into real books now. You don't need pictures to understand what's That's going right. on. In this. Or, or, yeah, you don't want them to interfere with your thinking or, or you your imagination. Pictures, you're like, this is kid stuff. So comics always has that prejudice against it because it's completely tied to, you know, childish things. And even just the fact that most comics people know about are either, you know, the short, goofy, jokey things in the newspaper, yeah. that, um, or um, superhero comics, you know? And so it's pretty easy and totally understandable for any adult to say, I am not interested in superhero comics. That yeah. makes sense to everybody. Yeah. That makes sense to people who are into superhero comics. So that is always a prejudice that I think will exist for for comics. I think the... Uh, and there are plenty of comics like that. that yes. Aren't, that aren't, you know... That feed into that prejudice. Well, they yeah. just aren't um, honestly adult. Yeah. Uh, the... I, I think the subtitle for understanding comics is the art of the invisible. And this idea that, that there's a gap between the panels and uh, you, you kind of fill in the gap or the, the silence. Yeah, it's a completion on the part of the, of the reader, right? Yeah. Um, in the same way, I suppose, that, um, you know, reading text, you, you know, you do a lot of completion there are That's pieces right. that you read that you almost feel like you had you think back on it and you're like did i see a movie of that because it you know works so well to kind of complete a, a whole world a whole picture in your head and that's a bit of what's going on with comics too of course i mean it's more explicit about like this person looks like this in each panel i mean he's talking about kind of the the passage of time from one panel to the next and what what is left out in that passage of time. Yeah. Or from page to page. Story is in those um, 
in those gaps. Yeah. And I think in a way that's more explicit. That's more explicit than it is with text. You know, yes, because yes, it's in kind of in your face, uh, isn't it? Yeah, in its way. I mean, I don't think you do that same kind of filling in when you're reading in that, like, what happened in this space in the time I turned the page in the way that it does with, uh, with comics. A couple of these milestones here. Mouse uh, sort of legitimated the study of comics because the university level courses on it. Right, that's yeah. a, that's a biggie. That's kind yeah. of hard to. I mean, people will refute it, and of course, he he didn't get a, a literary prize. He got a special. A special Pulitzer, <laughs> yeah. Because like, no, they didn't we don't really. Want to, we don't want to sully literature <laughs> with this. That's right. Also, Dark Knight returns again in this this video. The Nick Mount videos. Dark Knight Returns. Uh, so they're always mentioned together in Watchmen because they yes. all came out like the same year. So which that's was basically which why was 1986. So they're always mentioned together because they were all serialized ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, they came out of, as books at the time for, for different reasons. Were kind of world beaters. I mean, the connection between you know Mouse and those two is pretty tenuous I think the best yeah yes true enough but again part one is the sort of seriousness with which this genre is now taken that I suppose that's one and then the other is that yeah that they're actual books they're not disposable well, there's a lot of press surrounding all three right in right. different ways not necessarily always all three together but there's a lot of press so for comics it was kind of like oh we always wanted everybody to pay attention to us, and here they are, now paying attention to us. Yeah. So they get linked in that way. Even though it's really kind of like both Watchmen and Dark Knight create this kind of like darker superhero kind of thing, yeah. you know, which becomes a whole thing. And then for like underground or alternative comics, you mm -hmm. know, as it's called at the time, mm -hmm. you know, like then sort of nothing happened because yeah. there wasn't a bunch of people making graphic novels to then say and here's the next graphic novel right so it, it took a while for sort of the next generation of graphic novels to come out and that's you know more into the 90s and then really not until like 2000s before there's honest to god like major publishing house hits yeah like pantheon yeah well with um with chris ware Chris Lesso, more like I think Fun Home and and uh, Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Like I mean, there was a bit, you know, but sort of like in comics, we all knew, and I don't think Jimmy Corrigan, while it was somewhat celebrated, it, I don't think it was. I don't think it turned the tide in the way Persepolis and Fun Home did, and because what that meant was that then New York City publishing houses were now ready to take graphic novels seriously. Uh, Even though we'd been taking comics itself had been taking them seriously yes, for years, yes. and there was a body of work already existing that Chris Ware and Dan Clowes and and Chester Brown and Seth and Julie and on and on, many people were years into their careers and several books into their careers, but they hadn't had the major publishing house kind of uh, success that just made everybody kind of caused a bit of a feeding frenzy. You know, bookstores are now getting ordering them. Well, that's why I wanted to to make the the point. Chris Oliveros, your wife uh, Peggy, who was with DC Comics yep. Yep. and Art Spiegelman, had this campaign to basically get 
Yeah, graphic bi novel. Yeah. Yes, yeah. accepted. I mean, that, and the, that's one thing. The other thing that I find really interesting is that this selling direct into comic book stores, there was no return policy. Right. So that enables kind of a low cost of there's, entry. There was a low, yeah, it was a low threshold, and it was how yes. it was how um, almost every single comics publisher yeah. who started after that point, because Marvel and DC existed when the direct market was created. But yeah. It was how any of us would survive for yeah. any amount of time, because you'd basically you solicit didn't... for a thing that didn't exist yet, which is what you know book publishing does too, and and many other things. Yeah, and then you'd get the numbers. And then you'd print those, they'd go through the distributors, and you'd get checks from most of the distributors. And right. that allowed you to pay for that print run and maybe move on to printing the next thing. So it was very, it could be very subsistence level, and it wasn't a great model for growth if you weren't, if your numbers weren't climbing. They often weren't. It's a, be it's a better model than having to, to absorb the returns, though. Sure. Yeah, and returns can can kill be, you. They can be a killer. Yeah. But yeah. but I wonder. So, but you had to jump into that pond when you started selling to bookstores, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was hard. And that wasn't. Yeah. It was uh, often money losing, and mm -hmm. and for drawn and quarterly, it did not settle down until FSG. Yeah. Began distributing us, and that was a Peggy. Yes. Deal. You know, she brokered that deal. That was a year or two after she, because you were with Chronicle. A year or two after she arrived. She arrived in 2003. Yeah, and it was very expensive to be with Chronicle, and it seemed like a good fit, but then realized, well, they really do gift books. And what we want to be is with the literary peer. Yes, I see. And so FSG. Taken seriously. And FSG made sense, yeah. And that's when we started to have better sales, and it started to work. It's just a low fight. Uh, a longer fight than anybody expected. Yeah. You know, but and you I mean, it's still kind of it, right? Like yeah. Sabrina just being yeah. nominated for a booker, booker yeah. sort of makes sense to many of us, but then also, like, this is the first one. This, it took this long. You know, that's shocking. And it may take that long again for another one to show up. Right. Okay, just finally then, and and that's just have we have we missed anything here in our conversation? Well, we're very early in, into the whole thing, right? <laughs> um, I feel like it's it's not so much about like the modern era in some ways, but I mean, I think what's important about Drawn and Quarterly is that we've really worked hard to make it a real business, what does that much mean? more so than just being fans operating a publishing house for our friends. Right, like we've really tried to make it as strong and as sturdy a business as possible. So Just that, like your books. Yeah, yeah. So that the artists feel safe, which I've talked about, and also so the employees feel safe, and so that there's a place for all of us to go. You know, a lot of comics businesses aren't run well in the end, and so that's always been a focus. You know, like it's not just a matter of like we're just publishing the best comics, and so that's good enough. So how do you people, run it We're giving well, people then? money now, and they'll be fine. It's like wanting to create something that's bigger, right. that will last, keep people's books in print. You know, Peggy and I and Tracy and Julia now have all been in the company for well over a decade, Peggy and I almost 20 years, working with a lot of the same people. Like, they know when they come to us that there we are, and that their editor isn't suddenly going to be fired. They've just 
signed up with a publishing house and their editor had been fired or moved on, right? And they're like, okay, this is where my book is now, and I don't know anybody. I hope they take care of it. Like, we're trying to create a place that... Stability. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do that, then? How do you do that? You work really hard to make sure that the business say. part is running, right? And, and what, geez, what's the best advice on the business part of running? You, I mean, you, you get somebody who is paying attention to that. That's much more than just paying attention to the day-to-day, like, um, are we getting paid by our distributors or whatever. You know, yeah. you have to be thinking about... Collecting the, on invoices, you mean? Yeah, you have to be thinking bigger than that, right? Like, how markets are changing and, and paying attention to that kind of, you know, what trends are and stuff. And Peggy is exceptional at that, and that's been a big part of it. Right. So it's always like, you know, somebody like Chris or I gets a lot of credit because we sign up Linda Berry, and then she has this sort of great second career. And that's wonderful, of course, but, you know, that's part of the whole thing, and that's kind of the glory of it, right? And then the not-glory part is running the business. (laughs) Making sure employees are paid, making sure artists are paid. Keeping your reputation up. All that stuff, yeah, yeah. Right. You talk about her having a finger on the pulse of the trends of what... Well, she was a publicist, right? She came out of, of, like, New York City publicity and and fashion and and publishing. And so she pays attention to what's going on um, in the culture at large in a way that I think... Um, By what? Reading the New Yorker? A lot of us don't. Not just the New Yorker, but just reading, you know, all kind, knowing what's going on in fashion still, knowing what's going on in things that, you know, like you and I wouldn't find interesting. But then that becomes a major cultural trend that causes a shift that you might not see because you're kind of just focused on this over right, here, right? She's right. looking at all of it and seeing... How we fit in. I wonder how who she the does people that. are who are talking about comics right now, or talk, or right. or having influence when they talk about things and just stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So, reading a lot, keeping an ear to the, tr- you know, trendsetters. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for sure. How yeah. do you do that? I think you just you just pay attention to what's happening, you know, and on social media, in in, you know, your regular media outlets. Yeah. All of it, you know? Yeah. And then just understanding when to kind of employ it. Yeah. Which can be, tr- you know, trickier, but, too. But it, that's all That's all. just, you know, you learn to do it, right? And you learn to take Some people are risk. better at it than others, and, you know. You, you learn you, to be a better book editor, and some people are better at it than others, and, you know, just like anything, right? And part of that is, is, is learning to be nimble. But well, that's a nice thing about not being too big, is you can turn on a dime. Yeah, and I mean, we do compete with, like, major publishing houses over, you know, mm-hmm. like, what contracts, you know, what we pay for advances and stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is nearly impossible. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. we have, you know, and that is, that's been key. That's yeah. key for artists to know that, that we can do that if need be. Right. They also know we're operating... Not like a little mom and pop shop. Well, they also know that you're in taking the a international risk. arena, right? And you you're willing, to, and it's more of a risk for you, obviously, than these big publishing houses that have deep pockets. Right, it's no risk for them at all. No, so um, you're you're putting your livelihood on the line for them. Yeah, but but not in a in a way that is that's 
too risky, I suppose. Yeah, right? We're never risking the business. We're never risking yeah. Yeah. their safety. You know, that's a big deal for us. But it's it's running running a a solid business is a big part of what we do. Like it's pretty easy to just talk about the art of it all. But running, you know, we're a business. We gotta we gotta pay attention to everybody. Take care of everybody who is you know who's around us. Take care of those people that are walking around on the floor above us. For example, yeah. <laughs> that we've been <laughs> making able to... sure that the yeah making sure that the people the people who work for us in the bookstore feel safe. You know, thought about. Yeah, and part of something that's. Uh, human yeah yeah i mean it's pretty easy to feel part of something when you're right there at the beginning right and and harder as it goes along and so that's part of what we work towards is any you know new artist feels part of something and the, the people who work in the bookstores feel part of this thing yeah yeah You've uh, just sort of, there's been a change, right? So Chris Oliveras is now, is he the chairman or? He sort of consults. He stepped down and Peggy and I took over. When was that? It's like uh, seven years ago. Oh, you're kidding. I know, I have a hard time remembering. I mean, technically the beginning of Drawn and Quarterly is, is like 1989, 90, right? So the book is 25. Yeah, 25 years, so that's like 2015. This marked a change? Very specifically. Oh, did it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that was part of it, for uh, sure. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, part of that was is that he um, felt that uh, Peggy and I had good ideas and the company was in good hands. And yeah. so it was a good time for him to, you know, retire and draw comics. Is he doing that? Yeah. Yeah, and he actually has a, uh, a new book about the FLQ coming out next year. Not with you? With us. <laughs> the English one will come out with us, and uh, the French version will come out from a small Quebec publisher called Pow Pow. Okay, just finally then. So it's been some time since the two of you have been running this. Are you where you want to be for the rest of your working career or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love it. I, you know, I love comics, obviously. I love cartoonists. I love being in publishing. I love to make these objects, you know, being here like almost 20 years now. And that's you love Montreal? hundreds of books, hundreds of books. Yes. That, yeah. How many uh, in total? I don't know. Well, we do anywhere from 20 to 30 books a year, right? Is there a bibliography? There isn't there. That has everything. Up to everything. That's like that's cool. Okay. You know, I Didn't think that has that. like the the all the employees and and all the artists. This is such a great book. And all the um and all the books we had done up up to you know up to that point. So so this the collector could could go to town with this. This complete publishing history of any publisher is is fascinating. Right. Yeah, so a certain amount of it is blowhards blowing. But, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, we're trying to avoid but you, that. No, no, yeah. That's somebody who's like, oh, great, another <laughs> book. Or somebody just celebrates how awesome they are. That's right. I hope we're celebrating how awesome, you know, the artists are. You that's are. Really, I that's mean, that's really the intent. Here. That's the vast majority of this book. Yeah, uh, it's a great book. It really is. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very happy with it. I really think it came out exactly what we wanted. Certainly caught my eye, and then uh, I'm so happy to have been able to uh, uh, talk to you. So I'm going to leave it with you again. Is there, is there something that you'd 
like to get on the record before we... Uh... Well, I don't know. I've said so much. Yes, um, we have. I know. <laughs> I don't know if anyone would continue to listen the whole, the whole <laughs> way through. Yeah, no. I mean, you, you know, we're okay. You uh, good? You good? It's uh, you know, it's a great medium. I, I'm so lucky to have worked in it for so long. Right. And uh, you know, I hope to make more great comics. That's great for people over the uh, remaining years. And in many ways, I feel like we, you know, we've only just begun. Is what what the medium can do. What does that There's mean? So much great work behind us, but I think you know. You mean in well, terms of... Well, just people who aren't so sure about, I don't know if that book's for me. We're going to see more books that are for you, you know. Well, this book certainly is for me. This is... this is. I know you, you like a history. Uh, like <laughs> me, a good a good history. publishing history, yeah. So, uh, so, Tom Devlin, thank you so much. It's been Thanks a great, great pleasure. Title. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, so Tom Devlin is the executive... Editor of Drawn and Quarterly Publishing House, based in Montreal, Quebec. Thanks again. Thank you. It's kind of cold down here, isn't it? No, it's good. It's good. It's just good. Keeps you keeps you uh, awake and moving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can, I'm going to get you to sign my copy. Oh, good. yeah. yeah. This so, is oh, you yours. have it. Okay. This is yours. That's mine. Yeah. How many like have you got of these? You got a lot of them. Uh, still, I don't know, we've reprinted it a couple of times. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I know, 